Excited you're here tonight. Thanks for braving the cold, especially those of you who don't enjoy the cold, because it is a wee bit on the nippy side out there. The wind this morning was quite intense. I went out and ran, and normally I love running in the cold, and running that direction felt really good. Running that direction, not so much, so uh, it was a good time. Glad you're here. Hey, um, as we, as we come to the Word tonight, I want us to spend some time in our tables, around our tables in, uh, in prayer. Uh, and so here's what I would like to do. We've got several things in front of us as a church in the coming days. Uh, we've got this Saturday an opportunity to run a uh, children's craft booth out at the Festival of Lights and to make some connections and inroads with people in the community. We've got a family movie night coming up here on the east. Bump, bump. Uh, we've got a family movie night on the East Lawn that we've, we've put advertisements out over social media. We've encouraged families to invite neighbors to. Uh, we've got the Christmas concert coming up, which the Christmas concert Sunday uh, is actually the second most attended Sunday of the year, at least in the year I've been here, put it that way. So uh, there's, some, there's some interesting opportunities that are just not even us having to be aware of anything that are coming up on top of that, uh, just the Christmas season and what it presents. So here's what I want you to pray around your tables. If, if you'd pray aloud, and uh, I'll, I'll give a few minutes for, for prayer, and so however many of you want to pray in that time, you can. Uh, but just I want you to pray that God would truly, for us as a church, as believers, open doors to clearly articulate the gospel and to the other side of that coin is that God would really begin to stir and spur um, an awakening of, of people's need for Christ in our community. Very specifically, I want to pray tonight just for the spiritual awakening of people in our community, Pflugerville, Huddo, Elgin, and just our community here in the northeast part of Austin. So if you'd spend some time, if one of you would do, just be willing to jump up and start, uh, when I say pray here, pray at your tables, and then here in a moment, I will pray us back into as, uh, the life and times of Christ tonight. So uh, let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunities that you have placed in front of us as a church, congregationally. Father, the opportunities you've placed in front of us as a church individually in all of our lives with neighbors, coworkers, peers, uh, the, the wide array of relationships you've given us. And Lord, as we're in this, this season, um, Father, this is a season that is painful for so many. It's a season that is misunderstood by so many, especially those who don't have any uh, affinity for you. Um, it is a season that is stressful and busy and chaotic for many. And Lord, as we looked at Sunday, may our hope, may our focus be in the right spot. Now, there's a certain level of busyness that none of us will be able to exempt ourselves from, but we can, we can live in this season 
with a focus set on you, seeing those open doors, able to even talk to as we've got friends struggling with the busyness of the season and well, how, how do you seem to, to be walking through this and not going crazy? Well, let me, let me tell you, it's because it's about Christ. It's, Lord, may we just open doors, Father. This would be a month for us as a church where, there, where you use us and there are many people in our community who hear the gospel and, and God, as we, as we speak your gospel, would Holy Spirit, you just be moving in ways we can't imagine demonstrating to those around us in our community the hopelessness of their faith and not knowing you, and at the same time, Holy Spirit, convicting them that though they have fallen short of your glory, Lord, what we celebrate this month as believers is the fact that there is a plan to save them from falling short. So, Lord, may many hear, and may those who are ready who hear, Father, may they respond, and may you grow your church. Jesus, as we come to your word tonight, stir our affections. May we leave this place with a greater love for you. And just what a joy it is to be together, to hear the sound of voices lifting up prayer to you and your name, to open your word together. God, we do not take that for granted. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Well, we have officially been having Wednesday night Bible study for a year now. So we've covered a lot of ground. So uh, we're going to keep on trucking. Now, if you'll remember, before we broke for Thanksgiving, we've been walking through, we've been doing, as we come to the New Testament, uh, a chronological walk through the life of Christ. So I'll remind you that when you come to the New Testament, the first four books that we find are the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And not one of the Gospels is actually written in a modern-day biographical chronological order. The, The closest in there is likely Luke. He seems to describe it in, his, in the beginning of Luke that that is his aim. Uh, but but in, in all of the Gospels, there's a little bit of, uh, there's, a, there's a little, it's, it's not just a straight chronology. And so what we've done then is having looked at those kind of the unique things of each Gospels, we've been walking through the life and times chronologically of Christ. So we spent time, I think it was three weeks ago now, looking at uh, the birth, the, 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 the things that, the prelude to Christ's birth, Christ's birth, uh, his early uh, childhood, what's given to us in Scripture. And then last time we looked at that early ministry of, uh, of Christ, uh, where he comes down and is baptized. He goes into the wilderness. He, he meets, he has some initial run-ins there in John chapter 1 and John chapter 2 with Andrew and Peter and uh, John and uh, Philip and Nathaniel. And there's going to be a movement up to Cana, uh, which is right here. Uh, there's going to be a movement up there to, uh, to uh, the wedding. It's going to be the first miracle. It's presented in John. Then you're going to have him go down to, to Passover there at the temple. And John chapter 2, he's going, to, he's going to cleanse the temple. It's going to be in the backdrop of Passover and that cleansing and some miracles that he works, that he meets with Nicodemus. John chapter 3, like we looked at Sunday. 
And then from there, we get thrust into, uh, in John's gospel, the return to Galilee and the beginning of what we will call the Galilean ministry. And this is by far in the life of Christ. This is the largest chunk of time of his ministry. Now, it's not all only in Galilee. We'll see there's some movement. He moves around the Sea of Galilee, which, by the way, that's the Sea of Galilee right here. I don't remember. Yeah, here we go. This is the Sea of Galilee. He'll move all around. There will be some occasional trips down to Jerusalem for, uh, for festivals. But this is the Galilean ministry. If you go to Mark's gospel, this is where you instantly get thrust into this is where Mark's gospel, boom, gives you a little bit of what happens, and then we're thrust right into Galilean ministry, and this is where Matthew and Mark get to after uh, you see the wilderness testing of Jesus. And so, if you've got your Bibles, hope you do, uh, we're, I want you to go, uh, go to Luke chapter 4, And I will tell you that in John chapter 4, as Jesus is coming back to Galilee, what John chapter 4 tells us is Jesus will heal a nobleman's son back in Cana. There will be a healing there as as he heads back. As he heads back from down here in, uh, goodness gracious, I cannot see tonight to save my life, down here in Jerusalem. uh, And he he will be heading back up. And he will heal this nobleman's son in Cana, but we find ourselves in Luke in Nazareth, the city of Nazareth, where Jesus grew up. And here's what Luke says, Luke chapter 4, verse 14, and Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. Now, that is actually a general statement to tell you about this early movement back into Galilee. He's going to come back in filled with the power of the Spirit. And as he begins to teach, as he begins to perform miracles, what we're going to find in this early period of the Galilean ministry, which, by the way, I failed to say this, so let me back up for a second. The Galilean ministry, you can divide it into three big sections. There's the first period, the second period, the third period, and there's distinct markers for each. We'll look at those as we walk through them. Inside those three periods, you can break it down further into nine kind of specific things that take place, uh, smaller categories in there. So this is a general statement in this first period where he's going to be marked by great popularity. So he comes back, look with me, verse Luke 4, verse 16. Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, which tells you Jesus was a regular churchgoer, as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Now, by book, we mean scroll. They, they weren't using books. This would have been the scroll of Isaiah. Uh, the scroll of Isaiah was handed to him. He opened the, the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the scroll. He gave it back to the attendant and he sat down, which would be normal for him to teach. And he sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now just imagine that you talk about a a boom 
to the beginning of your ministry. You, you, you go back to your hometown where people have known you since you were a boy. You go into the synagogue. You pull out this prophetic passage from the book of Isaiah that all, all of you as Jews are routinely acknowledging is, is a prophecy about the Messiah to come. You open it, you intentionally read it, and then when you close it and you sit down and it's this quiet moment, everyone's looking to you, what's, instead of saying, now let me explain to you what it means or let me tell you what this promise is, you look and you say, let me tell you what you just, what I just read to you, it's been fulfilled in your presence today by me. This would be a, to use a, a modern young expression, a mic drop moment. It said, all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, so obviously he goes on to not just say that, he is going on to teach them. They're in wonder and amazement at his teaching. A common uh, thing we'll see said about Jesus' teaching elsewhere in the gospels is they, were, they, they marveled because he taught as one with authority and not as one of the scribes. He was not coming in and saying, well, this, we, we, you know, there's this interpretation or there's this interpretation or, no, he's coming in and saying, I'm telling you this is what it means because I wrote it. Now, not maybe quite in those words, but that's what he's doing. And you notice that pattern with Christ. He never says, thus saith the Lord, nor does he say, thus saith the prophets. He says, you've heard it said, I tell you, I tell you. I tell you, I tell you. And Jesus treats his word and his interpretation of the Old Testament as God's word. So they were wondering what's going on. And they said, is, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. So in this time, sorry, I, I didn't say that. Uh, the healing of the nobleman at Cana, it happens over here in Capernaum. So they've heard word of this healing. Hey, do this here. And he said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the day of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months. He goes on, there in, but Elijah only went to the one in Zarephath. Uh, there were many lepers in the time of Elijah, but only Naaman was healed. And it says, when he said this, all the people in verse 28 in the synagogue go from wonder to filled with rage they got up, they drove him out of the city, and they led him to the brow of the hill, which is on their city, which, by the way, is there today. It's beautiful, on uh, which the city had been built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he passing through their midst, he went this way. So all of a sudden, what happens when he, when he makes it clear to them that he's not going to be their little puppet and he owes them no hometown favors, they go into a rage and try to kill him. And this is the first of two rejections of Jesus in his hometown. And uh, just, just by means of application, I understand what that means about Jesus. We'll see this further with Jesus's family. They don't ever believe. Uh, his mother at least seems, according to the Gospels, to treasure these things in her heart, but we know that she does not fully understand who her son is and what his real mission is. We also know that Jesus's siblings think he's crazy, and not a one of them believe in him as Lord in the entirety of his of his pre-resurrection life. The, they only, the ones that do only do once he appears to them post-resurrection. So when you think about Jesus and you try to then apply, we'll see it later, the cost of discipleship, when you as a follower of Christ and standing for truth, experience rejection even down to the level of your own family members, of your own hometown, 
understand you follow a Savior who knows exactly what the searing pain of that loss and rejection is. Because he was rejected, and this is the beginning of the ministry here. Now, after he's rejected, here's what he's going to do. Look at verse 31. And he came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. So he is rejected in Nazareth, which is right here. And he's going to come down. Now, again, thinking uh, geographical speech, not map speech. He's going to go down to Capernaum, which is right here on the north, the north northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. He's going to go down to Capernaum. And he was teaching them in the Sabbath, and they were amazed at his teaching, for his message was with authority. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, let us alone. What business have we to to do with each other? Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, be quiet, come out of him. When the demon had thrown him down in the midst of the people, he came out. And amazement came upon all, and they began talking about this. What does this mean? Who is this man? He commands the unclean spirits out. Here is a mock-up of what the synagogue at Capernaum would have looked like with the entrance. You see everybody sitting on the rows. You see the open area. This is, by the way, if you ever get to travel and go to Capernaum, the ruins of the synagogue there are able to be seen today. Uh, Now, the ruins you're going to see are actually ruins from the 4th century, but the thing about Jewish synagogues is you build the synagogue on top of the foundation of the prior synagogue. So though those actual stones you see standing are from 400 years after Christ, the low stones of the foundation are the foundation stones that would have been there when Christ was there because it's always built on the same spot. So that, 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 in a way, that synagogue is still there. You can see it. And this begins, what Jesus is going to do is he goes down to Capernaum here. This begins in Mark's Capernaum really as Jesus's ministry home. This is going to be his home, his hub. He's going to go out, minister all over Galilee, and you'll see this pattern of returning to Capernaum, of finding rest in Capernaum, of coming back. Now, if you'll flip with me to Matthew chapter 4. Now, this is both in Luke and Matthew. Actually, you can find it in three of the the four Gospels. Matthew accounts it, Mark accounts it, Luke accounts it. But remember, early, right after Jesus is baptized, he meets Andrew, the first of the twelve who will come to know him. Andrew brings Peter. Andrew was already there with John. Then next you see Philip and Nathaniel. So you see five of the 12 early on, but notice the 12 haven't formed yet. We don't see the 12 in terms of the way we typically think yet. So they've already met Jesus. There's already been some interaction with Jesus. They know who he is. They've spent some time with him, but they've not yet fully devoted uh, to, not, they're not yet fully devoted to following him. So you pick up in Matthew 4.18. Now, as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers Simon, who was called Peter, and his brother Andrew, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. He called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So here here you have the beginning of Jesus formally calling and going after specific individuals to follow him. And you notice what the call is. Part of what I love about this passage is it simplifies everything about what it means after you and I respond to Christ in faith. What does it mean to be a disciple of Christ? Follow me. Follow me. Follow me. 
You believe what I say, believe. You trust me because of who I am. You do what you see me do. You say what you see me say. Follow me. Is that not one of the earliest childhood games you learn? Simon says, follow the leader. It's simple. We make discipleship complicated because sometimes we don't like the simplicity of if we follow Jesus, what he leads us to do, where he leads us to stand, what he calls us to sacrifice. But also notice this. He says, you follow me, but he doesn't say, you follow me and become fishers of men. No, he says, you follow me, I will make you fishers of men. Which goes back to this incredible reality. Yes, when, when you're in Christ, we are called to follow him, but we're not called to follow him all depending on our own. Because it's him who lives within us to will and to work for his good favor. So work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He is the one who makes us into fishers of men, which will drive at something we'll look Sunday just on the fact that as believers, church family, as believers individually, as believers corporately who form a local church, our mission is to be fishers of men. It is to be disciple makers. It is to be and to do that as we go about our everyday lives and the avenues that God calls us to. And we'll, more, more will be said about that when we come, come back Sunday. But see that, here's this initial call. Uh, he calls them. There is excitement taking place. We saw that in Luke chapter 4. That excitement is going to boil over. If you'll go back to Luke 4, that excitement's going to boil over there in Capernaum after the healings. It's going to boil over. And he's, he got up, left the synagogue, and entered into Simon's home. This is Peter. Peter's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever. So he goes in. He's going to heal her mother, his mother-in-law. And then all the sick are going to line up outside the house. And he's going to spend the rest of the day healing all of them. So this little, and if you ever get to go to Capernaum, it is a small town. I'm pretty sure, uh, I'm pretty sure uh, someone with a really good arm could take a baseball and throw it from one end of the town to the other. It is a small town. So the, the, the whole town would be wrapped up. This would be massive. He was healing them. Verse 41, demons were coming out. Many were shouting, you are the son of God. He would, he would rebuke them. And then when the day came, verse 42, Jesus left, went to a secluded place. The crowds were searching for him. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities and so he continues on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Now, in that same period, you're going to see also the, uh, the account with uh, Jesus on, uh, on the sea of telling Simon Peter to, to let out the nets. Now you're catching fishers of men and just the recognition of these, these men slowly but surely recognizing who Jesus is. So this is this initial He's rejected at Nazareth, his home. He's going to move over here to Capernaum, and you're going to see some steps to make that kind of his launching point and base of ministry. And by the way, if you've got, uh, if you don't have the cheat sheet we've been using the last several weeks, we'll have those again next week. We also have them online if you go look at the resources. If you do have them, you can see that on your list in there. Except next week, I might actually, I've spent a lot of time today retweaking that list. So I'm probably going to have an updated version next week That's that's got some tweaks that I prefer better to how the one uh, we've been using has. So, uh, here's what's going to happen now. We're going to have what we call the first tour of Galilee. With, and as first tour, understand, this is not with all 12 disciples yet. We're still not to the 12. So in these passages, when you read disciples, we know for sure there's these four guys, uh, Andrew, Peter, John, and James. We know those four guys are with them. We're going to see at the end of kind of this period, he's going to call Matthew, 
It's very possible some of the others were with him as well, but that formal group of the 12, where he's picked the 12, it's not happened yet. It's coming. Uh, as he goes through, it's going to be a, a period that is marked by growing fame throughout the region of Galilee because of the, mir- the teaching that he's giving, the miracles that, he's produ- that, that he is uh, doing. You're going to see in Matthew 8, Mark 1, Luke 5, all of those show a leper being healed. That amazes everybody. You move just past those passages to the next sections. You're going to see, the, of course, the famous story of uh, the paralytic who can't get in the crowded house where Jesus is teaching. And so his buddies hop up on the roof, pull the thatch aside, and lower the paralytic down. And, and Jesus says, and Jesus, of course, says, I, for, you know, I forgive you of your sin. And the, Pharise- the Pharisees are like, nobody but God can forgive sin. And he goes, you're right, nobody but God can forgive sin. But but in order to help you believe, it's easy. what's easier to say? Uh, your sins are forgiven, which no one can see, or get up and walk. Well, I say get up and walk. And of course, he gets up, takes his thing, walks out, and this starts a little bit of controversy because Jesus clearly states that he is God. So you see that in this time. This is, of course, when in Matthew chapter 9, Levi, otherwise known as Matthew, is going to be called. And of course, that's remarkable Jesus went on from there. He saw a man named Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth, and he said, follow me. Jesus intentionally walks up to a man who would be the the uttermost despised member of Jewish society for selling them out to the Romans. He walks right up to him, and he says, you follow me. I want, it was the the old Uncle Sam posters, I want you. Jesus walks up, I want you which says something remarkable about Jesus, that Jesus puts very little, and by very little, I mean no weight on society views, positive or negative, of people in terms of when he goes after someone and says, follow me. So Matthew, of course, this Matthew opens up, throws a big deal, many tax collectors and sinners, because that's who does Matthew run around with? He runs around with tax collectors and sinners in the eyes of Jews. The Pharisees, why on earth? Are you, are you eating with these people? Why on earth are you and your, why are you spending time with them? Curse Matthew 9, verse 12. But when Jesus heard this, he said, is it, not the, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. And he quotes the Old Testament, which is ironic to Pharisees, right? Because they've got most of the Old Testament memorized line for line. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous but sinners. Now, again, some will today twist this overboard. And God, Jesus was all about reaching sinners. So Jesus just hung out and acted like the sinners. I literally have seen a deal. If Jesus was around today, he'd go down to the bar and throw open the tab and serve the whole place. No, Jesus did not hang out with sinners and act like sinners. You don't see him. It doesn't say he went down to the local five and dive uh, with with them and and hung out till 3 a.m. and got plastered. No, he went to the house. And he did fellowship with them. He did share the gospel with them. He did laugh at things that were appropriate to laugh at with them. He did. And so we need to understand the tension of if there's a tension which says, well, we're supposed to reach sinners, so act like sinners. Well, that's clearly false. But there's another tension that says, oh my goodness, how can we, we, we're, we're going to only hang out in our little saved clique? No. Jesus came to save sinners. Which means if we're going to be like Christ, we're going to have to actually know some lost people who are quite sinners. And maybe even to the extent that we eat in their homes and they in ours. And it's remarkable in the life of Christ how much the use of hospitality was used in order to build relationships to share the message of the kingdom. 
something we can often forget about when we talk about evangelism and we all instantly go, ooh, cold turkey, i got to walk up to somebody I don't know on the street. You can. You can also go get to know your neighbor and invite them into your house and begin to have conversation. And in the words of missionaries in Russia, uh, people get saved in the kitchen, not on the street. we got to keep moving. So it's going to happen after this, which you're going to have take place is you're going to have uh, you're going to have a debate then about why are, you know, the Pharisees are going to say, well, we do all this fasting. You don't call your disciples to fast. And of course, Jesus' point is, why would you, if fasting is in order to, to be near to God, why would I have my disciples fast when you couldn't be nearer? And of course, he used the example of the bridegroom and the, and the bride and, and, and the, the, essentially the best man. Now, after this, we're going to have a little, uh, and we're going to see this initial part back uh, back in John chapter 5. And you you can turn there, but I'm I'm going to summarize here for the sake of time. John chapter 5 mentions one of these trips where Jesus is going to go down uh, down with with those disciples. To this point, again, the, the, the formal 12 disciples have not been formed yet. They may all be with them, but they've not been formed as that yet. They're going to go down to Jerusalem. And John 5 just says they go down for a festival. Now, John does not specify what festival this is that they've gone down for. And depending on if you believe this festival is a Passover or not is going to depend on how, how long you, you deem Jesus' total ministry. If this is a Passover, Jesus' total ministry is going to be uh, three, three years and some months. If you deem it not a Passover and another festival, it's going to be just under three years. Uh, I, I've based on my initial look back through today, just kind of re-remembering that. Ultimately, it, it doesn't matter how you, doesn't affect the truth of what's there. I tend to think uh, it's probably a, a Passover that he's gone down to, uh, and which would, which would mean then that this total ministry around Galilee that we're looking at tonight is about 18 to 20 months is the total time span. So you're talking about a year and a half to just shy of two years that Jesus is spending in this Galilean ministry. But here's what's going to happen. He's going to go down. Uh, he's going to go to these pools just north of the temple, the pools of Bethesda. And there's going to be a man who's been there for 30 some odd years. And the belief at those pools was when that an angel would come down. And when the pool stirred, that meant an angel would come down. And if you rushed down there and got there at the right moment, you would be healed. Well, this man has uh, physical uh, inabilities. He can't get there. Well, Jesus heals this man, and this is going to erupt the first of three controversies that are going to range from Jerusalem back up here to Galilee, where Jesus does or Jesus allows his disciples to do things that the Pharisees prohibit because they happen on Sabbath days. So the Pharisees are going to get all up on him. Now, by the way, those prohibitions, the stuff that Jesus does isn't prohibited in Scripture on the Sabbath day. Remember, the Pharisees are those who developed in that intertestamental time between the Old and New Testaments. They developed not just, they didn't just ascribe to the Old Testament law, but to the hundreds of interpretations that were made law off of that, the oral law. So all of these crazy, ridiculous rules they're following, it's not the Old Testament that's put those on them. It's them that's put those on them. And of course, Jesus is going to rebuke them for this. He's going to rebuke them in five steps. He's going to remind them of of how David, when David was hungry and his men, they ate the bread off the show table of the tabernacle. He's going to bring out an appeal to the law about temple service. He's going to appeal to the voice of prophecy. He's going to appeal to God's purpose for the Sabbath. The Sabbath, from God's standpoint, was not to make man prohibited from stuff on the Sabbath. It was to give man. The Sabbath is for man, not man for Sabbath. 
Not only that, he's going to say the Messiah has authority over the Sabbath, which means if I say they can pick grain, my rules go, not yours. So this, this controversy is going to erupt, and what this is going to do is up to this point, if you walk through all these stories in that outline you've got, if you walk through all of it, Jesus' popularity is booming. Why would it not be? A man steps on the scene who's, who's preaching in a way that you've never heard preach, who's preaching authoritatively. Not only that, but he's casting out demons, he's healing lepers, he's healing paralyzed. This is spreading. Why would there not be popularity growing? But now you're going to start to see what's going to, as we enter into the second period of the Galilean ministry, you're going to start to see a mixed bag where there's going to be both popularity, but there's also going to now be opposition that is going to continue to grow and ramp up because what Jesus is also doing is Jesus is beginning to call out the sin of his people. And again, does that not kind of remind you of today? If all we preached was lovey-dovey, feel good. Listen, God is love. God's love ought to make us feel good. God's love also calls out and deals with our sin. You could preach Jesus in such a way today as to just get nothing but popularity But if you preach the full canon of who Jesus is in Scripture, you're going to find a mixed bag even in the world today. And this is what's going on as we move into this second time. Now, the second time, uh, here's what's going to happen. Go with me to, uh, we'll go to Mark chapter 3 here. Mark chapter 3, as we move into this second period. Mark chapter 3. Uh, you're going to see at the, at chapter 3, 1 through 11, uh, 12, you're going to see one of these healing on Sabbaths. Uh, it's not here, Mark. Sorry, it's in Luke. Luke chapter 6 is going to describe that after this, that, that what Jesus does, he's, had, he's been healing all of these multitudes by the sea. He's had these controversies over the Sabbath. And what he's going to do is he's going to go and get alone for an entire night on the mountain, just him. He's going to spend the night praying. And it's on the backside of this session, this time of prayer that he spends with the Father that he's going to come back and he is going to select the 12, the formal 12 disciples as you and I know them. So Luke or Mark 3, verse 13, Jesus went up on the mountain. He summoned those whom he himself wanted and they came to him. He appointed the 12 and that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach, have the authority to cast out demons. He appointed to the 12 Simon, who he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, John, the brother of James. To them, he gave uh, the name uh, Boniger, which means sons of thunder, because they had very thunderous personalities, which is really wild, right? Because we always pick on Peter and how like Peter could put his foot in his mouth. But it's not Peter who was given the name Son of Thunder. It was James and John. So even though they don't get the spotlight as much, I I tend to wonder, they may have been, if we had been flies on the walls, it may have been James or John who made us go, oh my goodness, much more so than even Peter. But Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Now, obviously, if you read in in the other gospels, the account of the 12 names, there's a couple names that are different. Uh, That's not anything to be concerned about. It's not different people. It's no different than there's some of you in this room that I know you by one name, but someone else from your past would call you another name. 
even today, sometimes, you know, by your first, what was the deal? Um, my dad, he was, he was putting in names for a mission trip one time. This was back when you had to use travel agents, tickets, stuff, all this, and you had to make sure it was precise. We had a man on the trip named Bill, so dad just assumed his real name was William. And he thought, I better double check and just make sure that that's, that's right. Uh, his real name was Otis. <laughs> How on earth did you get called Bill? Well, my sister said I looked like a Bill when I was six months old, so it's just been Bill ever since. There's no Bill William in his name at all. That's the point. So when you see some of those now, because... We aren't back then. Sometimes we don't always know which two names go together, uh, and you can bring different opinions and theories on that. There's some pretty good ones out there, but don't let that deceive you. It's not that there was somehow we couldn't get, it's not that somehow the writers of the Gospels, all of whom were either apostles or writers using apostles' account, couldn't remember who was in the 12. It's just that there were different names that were used, and we're not told uh, all of how that relates. Now, immediately following the selection of the 12, you move into the Sermon on the Mount. You find that in Matthew chapter 5 through, the, through uh, 8 verse 1. Uh, you find that in Luke chapter 6 verses 17 through 49. Obviously, Luke's version is massively condensed, but you see there the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, for the sake of time, I, we, we could spend weeks walking through the Sermon on the Mount. So I'm just going to tell you, that's where it falls. And with the Sermon on the Mount, that officially concludes that first period. We move in now to the second period. So you've got 12 disciples officially there. Uh, In the second period, you're going to see Jesus withdrawing some from northern Galilee, from from this region. He's going to move at times up here, especially towards the end of this period. Uh, In this time, he's going to continue to teach, perform miracles, and we're going to see the opposition ramp up, especially uh, after Jesus heals a blind and speechless man, and the people go, you are a a follower of Beelzebub. You're a Satanist course, doesn't make any kind of logical sense. Wait, I'm of Satan, and so as, as one who's, who's, who leads the demons, I'm, I'm casting out the demons? Like, that doesn't even make sense. Instead, I'm one who's greater. But that's going to be, you're going to see that in this time. You're going to see a second rejection in his hometown of Nazareth. The death of John the Baptist is going to come in this time. Uh, you're going to see, you're going to see teaching on the costliness of following God. It's also going to be in this time that you see the feeding of the 5,000. You're going to see further Pharisees. You're going to see Pharisees come out of Jerusalem now to come against him. And so just walking you through here, uh, this initial, what's going to happen is Jesus' influence, the popularity is still growing. Uh, You're going to see the healing of a centurion servant in Capernaum in Matthew 8 and Luke 7. Uh, You're going to see in the city of, of Nain, which I saw Nain on here earlier. Goodness, I don't know if my eyesight's gotten worse in three weeks. Feel like it has. Here's Nain right down here. He's going to heal, he's going to raise to life a widow's son uh, there. In this time is when John the Baptist will be arrested for opposing Herod's uh, bad marriage. In this time from prison, John the Baptist is going to send some of his disciples. And it can be kind of curious for some of us, because here's John the Baptist, right? We saw that when we looked at things two weeks ago. Here's the one who said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And now he's in prison and he's sending his disciples going, uh, hey, Jesus, are, are you in fact the one? And before we get too harsh, I want to understand not one of us is above crises of faith. So there should be an encouraging word there as you see how Jesus responds to them, not in condemnation of John, but in assurance. Yes, go tell him he's the one. Also understand this, though. If you're John the Baptist, even though you're John the Baptist and you're this unique person, John the Baptist still, I mean, John even says it, 
I don't need to baptize you. I need you to baptize me. I need the salvation you're offering. Jesus' whole life, death, and resurrection hadn't played out yet. So it's, it's possible for John the Baptist to have been in that prison going, wait a minute. I thought Jesus, Jesus was the Messiah. Why, why hasn't he fixed this? Why hasn't he set Israel back up? Why hasn't he freed us from Roman oppression? Why are we still, even John is not exempt from poor expectations, which ought to also be a warning to us to make sure that our expectations of who Christ is and what it means to be saved by him and to follow him are in line with Christ's expectations and not in line with our own cultural versions of what that is. Because some of us can ask the same question, but Jesus, how on earth could, 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 could yet another bill that might now really threaten our religious freedom get passed this week? But you had to, you had to have 12 conservative Republicans supposedly to, to pass it, and they did it rejecting further religious freedom. Listen, Jesus, Jesus didn't come to set the United States of America up as a kingdom for all eternity. Now, I don't say that being flippant. Get it? Listen, if, if that bill's used to target people, I'll be one of the first arrested because they're not going to come after lay people first. They'll cut the pastors the easiest ones to throw in the prison. That's how it's always worked. So I'm not trying to be flippant about it, but I also understand we can fall into any category of having poor expectations. If John the Baptist can fall into that, we can fall into that. We need to be careful. It's going to be in this time. It's going to be in this time that Jesus issues, Matthew chapter 11, a stinging, stinging rebuke to all these cities. So Jesus has been going around all these cities in Galilee. He's preaching. He's teaching. Uh, he is calling them, right? We looked at the very first week. What is the central message of Jesus? Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's healing them. He's demonstrating power. I mean, we were talking, he's healed paralytics. He's given sight to the blind. He's raised the lame to walk. He's raised the dead to life. He has fit every prophecy that you can think of from those Isaiah passages. But then look what it says, Matthew 11, verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Oh, they're all about how, they make, how he makes them feel inside. Oh, they're all about the miracles he can do. They did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which incurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Now remember, you say, well, Tyre and Sidon, Ah, isn't this so much fun? We've been walking through the Bible chronologically. Who's well, Tyre and Sidon. Here's Tyre right here. Here's Sidon. Does anybody remember the significance of those cities? Who comes from those? Who's the daughter of the king of Sidon? Jezebel, Baal worship, the slaughter of innocent children to the flame. Those peoples that committed all this wickedness, cities of Galilee, if they had seen a fraction, if they had heard a fraction of what you've seen and heard, they would have repented in total sackcloth and ash. You haven't repented at all. Not only that, he goes further. He says, and you, Capernaum, Will you not be exalt, exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades, for if the miracles had occurred, oh, we're going to go a step further than Tyre and Sidon. If the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which had occurred in you, if the miracles had occurred in the city that for much of the last 
thousand years of Western civilization has been the city name synonymous with debauchery and sinfulness. If, if the miracles had occurred in that city, it would have still been in existence to this day. Which is why he says, I tell you, it's going to be more tolerable on judgment day for those cities than for you. Because you have absolutely no excuse to not have understood who I am, what the message I preach is, and you have not responded to either. You have not repented. That is one of the most stinging rebukes you could give. And understand, this is Jesus. And we're, and we're not going to get all through this tonight, and that's fine. We'll come back and pick up next week. But understand this about Jesus. We haven't gotten there yet. But these same cities are the same cities of people that after Jesus sends out the 12 for this ministry campaign and they return to him exhausted in that time, he's gotten news that his beloved cousin, John the Baptist, been killed. Grief is there. Here you're gonna try to go, hey, let, let me pull my disciples who also have come back on cloud nine and maybe aren't totally getting it. Let me pull them away for their own safety. Let me pull, let's pull away uh, for my own grief. Let us pull away for just rest. Let us, in the midst of that, crowds are gonna flock to him. And it's gonna say that when he sees the crowd coming across in the boat, it says that he is stirred with compassion, which is a term he, he, uh, that is, he sees, he sees them in deep within the core of his bowels of his being. He feels this mercy. He sees this need. He sees their sick. He sees their lame. He sees their hungry. And he desires to heal them and to feed them. These same people that Jesus has this unbelievable compassion on are also the same people. This is not Jesus being harsh because he's just in a hacked off moment. These are, he is talking about the people we're about to see in, in the stuff that's coming that compassion on. The issue here is not a lack of compassion. The issue here is the fact that Jesus did not come to establish a kingdom like we get in our minds the Messiah ought to establish. He came to actually deal with the real root problem in our lives, which is the fact that we are born and broken by nature sinners out of alignment with God, and we are in desperate need. All of life, all of fulfillment, all of hope is found in a right relationship with God, and then being in a right relationship with God, that relationship being submitted and surrendered to as the Holy Spirit works it out in our lives. This, this is what it's all about from now and all into eternity, and the only way you get there. We looked at it Sunday to be born again. What's that? There's got to be repentance. There's got to be initial repentance. God, I am, in fact, a sinner. You are in fact Lord. Jesus, you did in fact live. And you lived what I failed. And you died what I deserve. And you are alive because you're risen and I am trusting you. Repentance, which is an expression of faith. Inside of that faith, we, we now, as theologians have said many times, the Christian life is a life of repentance. Now, not penance. Not a lifetime of trying to pay back all the bad things we've done. That's penance. That's not what we're talking about. Repentance. The acknowledgement, Lord, yes, I was dead. This is wrong. I am turning to you and acknowledging this was wrong. You were right. And now marching in this way, repentance. Now understand, we're not in danger of that kind of judgment as believers. And most of this room, I know most of you, in fact, well enough to know that I'm not currently looking around the room going, mm, I'm not sure about your salvation. I'm pretty sure everybody in here is saved. 
But don't think that this somehow is any less because also get the heart behind this. Cities of Galilee, you have seen enough, you have heard enough, you ought to be responsive and you're not because your heart is hard and you're distracted by things that don't matter. And church family, there's times in our own life we have seen enough, we have heard enough and we're going, God, where are you? What's happening? Why is it? The problem is not with God having not taught us enough or given us enough. The problem is with the own hardness of our own hearts inside of a relationship with God. So don't, don't mistake me. I'm not saying somehow we lose salvation or jump. That's not what I mean. But, but understand the clear warning here. Also understand this. Sometimes I think as churches in the ministry world, there is this idea that if we just somehow present the message with the perfect words, if we just somehow have the, the ministries doing the right thing that's cutting edge, if, if we just somehow have all the ministry perfect, people are going to come to know Jesus in droves. Vice versa, we, let me put that more on an individual level. If, I, if you just know, the reason when you share the gospel, this is how we think about it, the reason when I share the gospel, no one seems to come to faith is because I just don't know how to do it right. The implication, I mean, if I just knew the perfect foolproof formula, give me that, uh, you know, Romans Road's not working anymore. Give me those four laws. Four laws doesn't work anymore. Give me the three circles. Give me that perfect track. If I just had, we have this idea that if somehow we just marketed Jesus and the gospel correct, boom, there would be mass response. Those people saw Jesus. They heard Jesus. They watched him raise the dead to life. They watched him give uh, the ability to walk to those who are lame. They watched him give sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf. They heard Jesus, the author of the gospel, share the gospel, and none of them responded. So we cannot judge the effectiveness of our witness in ministry solely based on response because that ignores the depth of depravity and sinfulness in the human heart and endangers us of watering the message down in order to gain a mass audience or becoming so discouraged that we just give up in that aspect entirely. Now, don't mistake me. You can also just be really ineffective ministerially, and that's why you're not reaching anybody. So I'm not saying this to some, because some would go, Bob, but Wes, but you got to, I'm not, but understand, I see this danger. It's a danger that if you go back and read ministry books from the last, honestly, 70, 80 years, but especially stuff from about the 60s and 70s onwards, you will notice if you have eyes to see and ears to hear that much of our ministry tactics are based out of the modern principles of business marketing and are driven by the premise if we just do it right, listen, church family, we could follow Jesus faithfully as a church for the next 20 years. And see a handful of people come to faith in Christ. We could follow Jesus faithfully in the next, for the next 20 years and see more people come to faith in Christ than we could ever dream of because God just moves and he does what he does. Listen, our job is not the results. Our job individually and corporately is to be faithful to the Lord and Savior. Our job 
is to be faithful to do the work, how he said do the work, when he said do the work, and the way he said do the work. It is his job to actually bring salvation. It is his job to convict sinners' hearts. It is his job, which is part of why we're going to look at what we look at Sunday. Jesus didn't say, go and make force, go and force people to know me. He says, I'm sending you out to be what? My witnesses. So understand our job is to be faithful because the real reality of the human condition is this. And this, uh, this, this, this means two things for us. The really honest human condition is you can see Jesus standing in front of you. Think about the most skeptic person you can think of. They could see Jesus standing in front of them and still reject. I don't know a more perfect witness than Jesus standing in front of you. Beats anything I could offer. That's the real depth of depravity of the human heart, which inversely is this. Go back to what we looked at this past Sunday. You and I were once that. Understand the unbelievable miracle. If you are in this room tonight or you are watching online and you have responded to the gospel of Christ and repentance and faith, you have been saved by grace, washed in the blood, understand the unbelievable miracle because there is not one of us in this room that was born any less lost and hard-hearted than those. But in the kindness of the Holy Spirit, he convicted our hearts and somehow in, 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 the, in, in, in the massive grace of God and mystery of it all, we responded and Jesus saved us from that death and blindness. That is a miracle that we should never get over for the entirety of our lives and into eternity. It's mind-blowing. Not only that, but by the way, these same, this same message of woe, he's still gonna spend another year and a half reaching the same people Because our God who says woe is also the God who is faithful to see things through to the very end. And unfortunately, some of those people, they never did respond. But who knows how many of them did. And the days that came and the times that followed. Anyways, I go on and on. But there's, there is a, a massive reality there as we see that. He's going to rebuke those cities. The next thing you'll see in Luke chapter 7 is Jesus is anointed by an immoral woman. This is sometimes, there's, is that Mary Magdalene? Is it not? Truth is, this text doesn't say, but that's, this is as Jesus' uh, fame is reaching its peak. And we come back next week, we'll see the second tour around Galilee, this time with the 12, and we will see the intensely ramped up hostility of the Pharisees. And the things that come as Jesus begins to transition into uh, preparing his disciples for his, uh, for his death and resurrection. So we'll stop there tonight. Church family, so grateful you're here. I uh, will pray us out. We've got Christmas Cafe Friday. Pray for us. And if you've got a chance to volunteer, you're out the, the festival Saturday, come see us. We've got a great day Sunday. Sunday's the beginning of Lottie Moon uh, prayer.
emphasis week, so we'll mention that. We'll have the prayer guides for the week as we pray for our uh, 35, roughly 3,500 full-time missionaries we support as a church through our international mission board, and uh, we will, uh, we will, and we'll have a good time of worship Sunday. So uh, tomorrow's December, so happy last night of November, everybody. Next, uh, I hope you have some Christmas decorations up. We actually got ours up before December 1st this year. It's a Christmas miracle. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. God, I do just pray. And Jesus, we will never, ever come to a point where we fully understand and fathom who you are. You are God, we are not. But you really have made it amazingly simple. You made us to be in relationship with you. We broke that with sin. We're guilty. We need to repent. If we're going to turn from it, where are we going to turn to? Well, you, who came, who lived, who died, who rose, who's coming back. We turn to you for salvation. God, you save us to restore us to yourself, to make us sons and daughters, to adopt us as sons or daughters, to transform us, to regenerate us, to make us new. The old is gone, the new has come. You've saved us out of the kingdom of darkness, placed us securely and firmly forever in the kingdom of light. And what does it look like to know you? You make it simple there too, Jesus. Follow you. Follow you. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, he will flee. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. You make it unbelievably simple, Lord. So God, I do pray that we as a church would be a, a markedly simple people. God, we may do something in ministry that a Southern Baptist Texan wants to interview us about. We may never do anything that anybody ever notices from, from ministry magazines or this. Lord, you had not called us to be cutting edge in ministry. You've called us to be faithful to you. And may that be what we are marked as, as individual brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of you. And may that be what we're marked up as as a church. That we would stand before you on that day. Having by your grace, through your power as you live within us, Holy Spirit, taken the, the two, the five, the ten talents that you've given to us and gone and placed them into, in, into service, walking with you, putting them into service. And on that day, may we, may we turn them back over to you where by your grace they have, they have exponentially grown. And, and you look at us and you say, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little, so now I'll thank you faithful over much. Enter into the joy of your master. God, may it be. Give every one of my brothers and sisters in this room and watching wisdom. We look to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.